1: the WikiLeaks founder, who has published huge troves of sensitive government documents, has been going on for over 12 years. During that time, he has been under house arrest, he's been living inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London, and most recently, he has moved to Belmarsh prison since 2019. His extradition case is ongoing. During that time, he has met, married, and had two children with a half-Swedish lawyer called Stella Morris. She has become somewhat of a campaigner for him and joins me here in the studio to talk his case, the ethics of his movement, and what is happening to the free internet. Welcome, Stella. Thank you. So let's start with your story. You are the wife of Julian Assange. You met him while he was incarcerated within the Ecuadorian embassy.
2: I met him under house arrest, actually, in 2011, so before he had gone into the embassy.
1: So tell us that story you, you were you involved in his campaign in some way? you're a lawyer by profession? How did it all happen?
2: I got involved um, in his case actually because uh, at the time he was facing extradition to Sweden, and the extradition case was already underway and uh, through Jennifer Robinson, who's one of his solicitors at that time, um, now his barrister, uh, she through her uh mutual networks um put out uh, requests for people to work on the case and i guess combination of my um language and
1: because um, you are half swedish and therefore you speak swedish speak
2: swedish um and so i was i was called in for an interview and i met julian in february 2011
1: so at that point were you already aware of his case and a kind of supporter of his cause in some way, or was this just curiosity? Or what led you to take up that call?
2: Uh, I had I had first heard about WikiLeaks in around two thousand eight because I was um, I, had, I was living in East Timor, two thousand six two thousand seven working there, and I think it was two thousand eight that WikiLeaks put out some um, documents relating to East Timor, and that's when it first came onto my radar, and then. In 2010, obviously, the collateral murder video, I remember vividly watching that for the first time and crying as I watched it. And uh, so I had been following the WikiLeaks publications like everyone else, um, you know, who's vaguely interested in, in uh, international politics and, and so on. Uh,
1: and you, had, were, you were supportive already of the, of the fact of it being released and you kind of felt that it had been a good thing for the world already before having met Julian.
2: Yeah, I think that was that was the vast majority of the mainstream um, view that, that WikiLeaks was bringing a groundbreaking um, new way of doing journalism and that the publications were just uh, of enormous importance. They're about the Iraq and Afghanistan wars um, and the diplomatic cables. And I mean, if you cast your mind back to that time until then, you know, no one was reporting about those wars anymore. They were just there, uh, and the U.S. was not admitting um, that it was recording civilian casualties. And through WikiLeaks, um, fifteen thousand unaccounted for deaths were um, out in the open. So this kind of thing was of enormous um, importance. I wouldn't say I was a supporter, you know, like uh, campaigning or going to protests or anything like that. I was interested in the in the issue, and um,
1: I also so when you when you met him for the first time. What was your first
2: impression? Uh, Well, um, that he was very rare, like a rare, like someone I, unlike anyone I had met before. uh,
1: In what way? How does that come across?
2: uh, I mean, he's brilliant and um, unusual in his interpersonal interactions, uh, because I mean, Julian's on the, on the autism spectrum disorder. So, um, he has this kind of curiosity for, uh, people and, and things. He has this, anyway, he's, he's kind of, uh, curiosity, uh, in, well, in me, I guess at the time, because he was, um, asking me about my background and so on. So it was part of, I guess, the... um... Courtship? No, no, not at that stage. Um, I think because he was, you know, very high profile at the time. And in fact, when I came into the room, I wasn't uh, expecting to meet Julian. Um, It just happened to be where I had been asked to go. And the person I was supposed to meet was on a break. And, uh, And Julian, thought that I was I said I had come for the interview and Julian thought I was an American journalist mm-hmm. that was going to interview him so he was immediately on guard um, and you know he was on guard a lot for a long time it took a long time for me to get to know Julian as a person but my first impression was in a way like I already knew him because I had seen him and he was very much like I uh, imagined he would be and at the same time like a very uh, like a, a rare creature so
1: this is the sort of question this might sound a bit personal or like your your mum might ask but did you consider the kind of practical implications of getting involved with someone who is in the middle of this huge furore and was about to possibly be moved into prison did you did you think about that was that a, a big concern of yours I think a lot of people would think you know even if he's great why get involved with someone when they're gonna be in prison all the time?
2: Well, that wasn't all the, um... when we got together was four years later in 2015 and he was already in the embassy. And by then, you know, he was my uh, best friend, the person I wanted to spend all my time with. Um, Obviously, Julian being so exposed uh, politically and in the media, there were a lot of attacks constantly. And I'm quite a reserved um, person, uh, and I, I, you know, was keeping a, a low profile. And I ideally would have, <laughs> if I if I had had a choice, um, at least then uh, wanted, you know, I didn't like the exposure at all. Uh, and and there was risk, of course, uh, associated with with. Um, being known to be Julian's partner on the other hand uh, you fall in love and you kind of live with the consequences of it if you're true to yourself Uh, and I don't regret it for a minute Julian is my you know he's my he's everything to me and um, and this is the journey that we're we're in Uh, and you know when you love someone you you're just it's not even an option Um,
1: so how those early years of you being together then must be among the most unusual of any couples because he's stuck in this building in central London which he can't leave. Mm. And I guess you just have to visit him whenever you want. How do you actually have a relationship and develop a relationship with someone who is imprisoned within certain rooms of an embassy in London?
2: Well, that was his... Home, you know, from two thousand and twelve when he went into the embassy, uh, it was small. It's not a building. It's you know, it's it's right by Harrod's, mm. and it's just half a floor of a building, um, about seven rooms, maybe, um, and uh, three of those were or two and a half were for his use. And while the Ecuadorian diplomats and the government were on side, uh, there was a there was a good relationship. There was, um, you know, um, conferences held there about um, the internet, and you know, lots of visitors, interesting people, constantly visiting. That changed when the Ecuadorian government changed in 2017. But in those early years, when we were together, um, Julian had, you know, a, f- a fair amount of privacy. He was able to. Um, Write books and and promote his books and um, and do interviews and receive visitors and and have you know um, lunch with the diplomatic staff and so on. It was a it was, I remember those years fondly, even though it was uh, a situation of, of um, outrageous um, arbitrary confinement uh, because of the politics around it. Um, it was a very interesting place to be in and. Uh um, you
1: were essentially living there with him then, were you?
2: I was spending a lot of, yeah, a lot of my time there. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't living there, obviously, but...
1: Um, so you can go out and yeah. buy things and see people, then you can come right. back?
2: Right, yes. Uh, but I did get a good sense of what it was like for him because, you know, sometimes I would spend, uh, you know, whatever, 16, 16 hours a day in that embassy. And I, um, I have a lot of, I lived a lot of that with him. And I think if we hadn't found each other, it would have been a lot. It would have been extremely uh, difficult for, more difficult for him. Uh, But
1: do you think you saved him in some way?
2: I think our, um, I think our love for each other has made us resilient and strong and able to support each other. Um, I, I, I think it's impossible to survive something like this if you don't have someone by your side who loves you and supports you. I think I'll, if you're on your own, um, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to, um, to survive it.
1: So is he now would you say, in a strong mental state? What kind of state is he in? Did you observe it changing over the time where he was kept inside for all that? What What's his mental state like?
2: Uh, I, definitely um, there was a deterioration over time, but that was also because the Ecuadorian government, there was a change of government and they were seeking a um, close relationship with the United States. And obviously Julian's asylum was incompatible with the new government's ambitions. And so their strategy was to initially invite him out, um, saying, you know, mm, you should choose to leave. Uh, and when he didn't, uh, they then moved to suffering, trying to suffer him out of the embassy. Uh, by then there was a change of diplomats, the the uh, ambassador. Carlos Sabad had told the foreign minister that if Julian was forced out, he would not comply with the order. He was removed, and the other two senior di- diplomats were also removed. And three, three new senior diplomats were brought in who were, um, the, um, uh, who the.
1: They were more amenable to the new. Well, they regime.
2: were cl- yes, they were close to the new president Moreno.
1: So what what did this suffering look like? What. What did they change about his regime?
2: They cut off his internet, um, but not just his internet. They installed um, signal blockers that would interfere also with the phone signal. There were complaints from the other um, flats in the, in the apartments in the, in the building because it just knocked out all phone signal, internet. They blocked visits between March 2018 and October 2018, there were no visits allowed Except for his lawyers, sometimes sometimes his lawyers weren't allowed in. And you? I was sometimes not allowed in. Yeah, um, and then they changed it to a, basically a, a tripwire agreement where there were twenty seven clauses, and if one of their, them were they, one of those clauses were violated, he would be expelled from the embassy. So it was a completely arbitrary. Um, Situation where he didn't know where, where the what the rules were. They were constantly changing, and they were under the threat of him being thrown out of the embassy. Um, and then ultimately, they did things like uh, he was only allowed visits during office hours. So from 5 p.m. on Friday to eight 8:30 on the Monday, he wouldn't see a single soul. There were guards there, um, but they were the security company that was inside the embassy was actually um, secretly working under instructions of the CIA, uh, it turns out, now we know, through a Spanish court case, um, but that the attitude from the security guards were, was also um, hostile. Uh, and ultimately he was, you know, forcibly and violently re- removed from the embassy and taken to Belmarsh prison. So in Belmarsh Which prison... Which where he still is. Yeah, Julian, Julian has been in Belmarsh prison since the 11th of April 2019. So it's over three years. He's not serving a sentence. He's there on remand while the U.S. extradition case makes its uh, takes its course, and uh, it's obviously extremely harsh on him. Um, Belmarsh prison is a harsh prison with Cat A prisoners, which means that um, Julian is, is treated as if he were serving a sentence. Um, you know, he's in his a cell on his own for twenty plus hours a day. Um, he's allowed out into a, a you know cement courtyard with um, um, razor wire around it, and he you know he's not he's not a violent person. He's not a threat to society. He's a He's a publisher. He's a journalist.
1: So how many years in total now are we talking of him being, you know, a fugitive from the law, let's say?
2: He's never been a fugitive from the law.
1: Okay. Well, however we whatever words we would want to use to describe it being
2: deprived of his liberty.
1: If you prefer. that. Um, how many years in total?
2: No, but it's it's important to clarify that he's never
1: Well, the American judicial system is after him. So in that sense, he is trying to, to run away from, from their He's
2: trying to challenge process. an extradition request from the United States. Uh, he was arrested, uh, he voluntarily went to the police station on the 7th of December, 2010. He was put in Wandsworth prison for 10 days. Then he was placed under house arrest under extremely restric- restrictive conditions. He had to sign uh, at a police station every single day Um, and he could only be outside um, the confines of the house um, from 8 to 10, uh, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. He was never charged in Sweden, never. For the nine years that the Swedish authorities um, had this preliminary investigation open, he was never charged. And the Swedish preliminary investigation uh, was never a serious investigation because they never moved to question him what serious investigation refuses to question the supposed suspect for years on end, especially let's in a sex just, let's
1: case? Let's just deal with those separately then, the kind of the Swedish mm-hmm. um, situation in the American. In both cases, as his wife now, um, do you not feel there is any argument that things might have gone better if he had actually gone with the process, argued his innocence and seen what the normal judicial system came out with I mean do you think in retrospect that he made the right call or do you think it's been a very long time do you think he might have been in a better position by now if he had turned up and answered the charges
2: there were no charges and that's exactly my point that the process in Sweden was extremely irregular from the start Uh, no serious investigation refuses to question a suspect for years on end and, in fact, the Swedish prosecutor was only compelled to question Julian after six years by a Swedish court who said she had failed her duty. Um, I think part of the problem is that there has been an extremely uncritical um, approach to what happened and what was being done to Julian, partly because, um, because there was some antagonism with him and WikiLeaks, in the media and so on, but there was no, um, look, Julian and WikiLeaks, of course, was in an extremely politically exposed position once WikiLeaks had started publishing the cables, the Iraq and Afghan uh, war diaries and so on, extremely exposed. And the legal processes that were initiated were highly unusual. And there should have been extra scrutiny that everything should have happened um, correctly, but instead they were politicized from the start.
1: So what is your contention then about the Swedish case? What what do you think the truth of it is? Why, why were all those irregularities happening? What was behind it, do you think?
2: Well there was a Daily Beast article um, that came out about seven days before Julian went to Sweden saying that um, the US State Department was asking its allies to find a way to stop Julian in his tracks. Um, And to find any way to um, to initiate some kind of criminal proceedings against him, Um, did that happen with Sweden? I don't know, but I know that that Daily Beast article was published. It's absolutely um, undeniable that Julian was uh, in that the case or the preliminary investigation in Sweden was politicized from day one. It was not dealt with as uh, as a a regular case, and in in fact. we know a lot about it now. Um, the Freedom of Information Act requests have revealed correspondence between the UK and Sweden. And the UK's uh, Crown Prosecution Service, in fact, was the one that told Sweden not to question Julian here, which is extraordinary and completely unjustifiable. And it raises a lot of questions. Um,
1: but what is that? I just want to get the sense of what that means. It raises questions because I'm partly Swedish as well. What we're What we have to believe then is that a call was made from someone or there was some implicit or explicit request from the American government to the Swedish government at some level and then even the British police, I guess, if they're going to be in on this irregularity, to stitch him up. Do you you believe that happened? Do you think that is a plausible scenario?
2: I don't see any point in talking about things that um, I... I can't confirm. What I can confirm is that the Swedish Court of Appeal ruled that the prosecutor had failed her duty in relation to the investigation relating to Julian Assange and that once he was questioned in 2016 the Swedish Court dropped the case. It was reinitiated after his arrest, after UK MPs put a lot of pressure for that to be reinitiated. A new prosecutor looked at the case, didn't bother to question Julian again and dropped it again.
1: So that is now behind you, Mm. anyway, behind you and Julian Assange. Let's look at the American situation. What do you think will happen if he is extradited?
2: To him? If Julian is extradited, he will be driven to take his own life in a U.S. prison, or even before he is extradited. Julian has endured... Years of confinement, and his physical and mental condition is seriously deteriorated. What he faces in the US is so barbaric that.
1: Um, what is it? I mean, spell it out for us. What is it? You. What is it exactly? You think will happen to him? He will be convicted and just given a full life sentence, or put in a, uh, a particular type Even of prison. Even post- what, what do you? What do you fear? Uh.
2: Julian is indicted under the U.S. Espionage Act of 1917. He faces 175 years, not for, there's no allegation that he's a spy per se, um, but that he received information from Chelsea Manning and he possessed it and he communicated it to the public and they say that this is a conspiracy with the source. There is no public interest defense in the United States. The case would take place in the Eastern District of Virginia, just a few miles away from CIA headquarters. It's a court uh, where no national defense, uh, national security defendant has ever won a case. Um, the rules of the jury uh, selection um, mean that you can't challenge uh, a juror who has, who is works for the government or whose spouse works for the government because of the concentration in the Eastern District of Virginia, uh, where. Um, There's a huge uh, um, concentration of national security contractors and uh, national security um, um, government departments. It is a hostile jury. On top of that, Julian, uh, the U.S. government has said that because Julian is not a U.S. citizen, he does not have First Amendment rights. I mean, just imagine that the Chinese government were to issue an extradition request for a BBC, the BBC journalist that published the uh, Uyghur detention files.
1: I mean, the U.S. government isn't the Chinese government, though. Is it? I mean, the I
2: precedent guess... is set. The precedent is the same. It it is the. Well, let's look at it. What... Well,
1: let me just ask you if we let's let's entertain a slightly alternative scenario, which is that you could say now is quite a good time for him to appear in court in the U.S. In that at least from your perspective, there's a democratic administration. Um, a sufficient time has passed that those people who are kind of most exercised by it will are no longer in power. He has very powerful friends in the media and in Congress. And the reality is if there were a big trial in the US, there would be a big media furore about it and a lot of attention. And probably the outcome would not be quite as grave as you're suggesting, and maybe it would be more favorable to him. What, what Do you think there's grounds for optimism in what I've just said?
2: I mean, would you chance it? The US, uh, under the Trump administration, the CIA, when it was headed by uh, Mike Pompeo, plotted to assassinate Julian here in London. There was an investigation that was published in September last year. It had three national security reporters on it. US Americans, not, you know, they have no um, uh, particular sympathy for Julian and that investigation had over 30 sources, including named sources, very senior sources in the Trump um, National Security, uh, um, the National Security Council, the CIA and so on. And they confirmed that Pompeo was completely obsessed with Julian, and taking down Julian, to the extent that he had asked for sketches and options about how to assassinate him. And the CIA had actually um, uh, he's put out, into... He's out,
1: he's out though. For... <laughs> what, what isn't, now, is if you've got to face trial, maybe now's the moment to do it. Do, 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 do you think a, there's any strength in that argument?
2: This is a country that plotted to assassinate a person, a publisher. A journalist. I mean it doesn't matter which country it is, of course you cannot extradite a person to the country that has plotted to assassinate him. Um, And Pompeo is out, well, for how long? And you know in fact Priti Patel, um, who who recently approved the decision, um, the extradition order, the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago, had this uh, leak that pretty Patel's office had requested to the DOJ uh, that the DOJ make a public thank you to Priti Patel for signing Julian's extradition order. What's that about? You know, Isn't and that in just fact, normal
1: politicians trying to get favorable moments in the media.
2: If you believe that Pretty Patel was just doing a um, quasi-judicial function looking at the case uh, um, then it's completely inappropriate um, for her to be a- asking the DOJ for a uh, um, public thank you what was interesting though was that Mike Pompeo did tweet a thank you and in fact um, visited Pretty Patel in the home office just last week it's that
0: time of the year
2: in the US administration, in the Biden administration. What is he doing visiting the Home Secretary in the Home Office? And she was tweeting about it. So this is a highly inappropriate, deeply politicized uh, case. This is the man who was ordering assassination plans of the man of Julian who she she just joined, uh, she just signed the extradition order for. I mean, I think my frustration with Julian's case is that it's always viewed through an extremely narrow lens. Julian is accused of activity that national security and investigative journalists do, and it is cast in a uh, a, a criminal uh, um, definition. It is a departure from what there has been until now. The U.S. has never indicted a publisher under the Espionage Act. In fact, it wasn't until Obama um, that the Espionage Act was used to prosecute government sources. And it was during Obama's um, administration that the the DOJ, the Department of Justice, made an announcement that it was not going to prosecute Julian WikiLeaks over the Chelsea Manning leaks. And in fact, a spokesperson said, there's no way of doing this without setting a precedent for the rest of the press. Julian Assange is a publisher, he's not a hacker. And the departure came with the Trump administration, who had an adversarial relationship with the press and wanted to set that precedent. And that precedent is extraterritorial. I mean, Julian has nothing to do with the U.S. He's an Australian citizen. He was publishing from the U.K. He was invited here by The Guardian to publish from here uh, in cooperation with The Guardian and, and The New York Times and many others. What Julian is accused of, you could accuse The Guardian of exactly the same thing. I was using the example of the BBC um Uyghur detention files. Those are police files from China. China could say these are classified files. You have broken our secrecy laws. Our official secrets act says you as a British journalist publishing in Britain can be put in prison for the rest of your life because you exposed our secrets. It doesn't matter that they're crimes or war crimes like in Julian's case.
1: I, I want to get onto this in just a moment but just before we leave this kind of alternative history area because it's interesting to me, are you sure that he wouldn't be in a better position now had the process been allowed to flow more. It's almost like he has created, he has prolonged his own case in some sense by resisting so extremely from what might otherwise have happened. And I just wondered, there there were moments, the original moment when, as you say, the New York Times, The Guardian, were totally behind him, everyone was paying attention. And even moments like now, I would suggest, that maybe maybe it'd be better for him and for you as a family to allow it to happen and and have faith in you know it playing out rather than resisting to the end because as you say he's he's been near suicidal and there've been incredible tolls on mental health sitting in the same room for years on end at some point the alternative must be better
2: well it play, playing out is julian dying that is i am convinced of that and when you talk about but the you process mean take
1: rather than anything no. else
2: no i mean who knows if the cia was plotting to assassinate julian uh, julian isn't safe anywhere near the united states and um,
1: so you think now even now with a different administration and with the CIA as it is, you, you seriously think that they might assassinate him when he lands on U.S. soil in some way or inside a U.S. prison or however?
2: What I know is that the CIA was plotting to assassinate Julian because it's been reported, not because I say it. I certainly felt that he was at risk. But when you say the processes, let the processes take their course, which processes are we talking about?
1: the legal case in the US.
2: Julian is accused under a piece of legislation from 1917 under which there is no defense. If you make receiving information from a source a crime, possessing it a crime, and publishing it a crime, you're guilty. There is no public interest defense. Julian cannot say, I published this because um, because it revealed the killing of Fifteen thousand civilians, including grandmothers and babies and pregnant women, and so on. He can't raise that. There is no defense. If you cast journalism as espionage, it's over. It's not even about, um, you know. There's this typical. Uh, there's this typical uh, question about national security versus, um, you know public interest and how do you manage these things. And the US case is that there is no, there is no balancing. You receive information that the US says could have the potential to harm national security. It's not even actual harm, potential. Um, You're guilty. And he faces 17 charges, including 40 years, four charges in relation to the Guantanamo Bay Files, And I raise that, Guantanamo Bay Files, because the Telegraph, in partnership with WikiLeaks, published exactly the same material, exactly the same.
1: So that may be the legal situation, but the political reality is that you'd have to have a democratic um, administration presiding over this person who, to many on the left, remains a hero, being incarcerated in this kind of unusual way because of these unusual laws, it just seems at this stage unlikely that that would all fall into place like you're saying, doesn't it?
2: But your very framing of the question, because the administration right now is democratic, he has better chances. That's a political case. And Julian's life is on the line. He's, you know, He shouldn't be in prison. He shouldn't be facing prosecution for what is the most significant journalistic publications of the past 50 years. This is the free press case of our lifetimes. And it's not just about Julian. Julian's case is going through the UK UK courts. Right now it's going to go to the high court. There are issues that are presented such as the equivalence between the US Espionage Act, how it's operating in this case, and the Official Secrets Act. This is setting precedent for the scope of press freedom in this country, in the UK. And think about the implications of having an extraterritorial secrecy law affecting someone who is working in the UK who's not a US citizen who was publishing alongside UK press
1: let's talk about his that central question and his actual case what he actually did do you see the argument and what do you make of it that actually governments would practically cease to function if there was no secrecy contract around certain sensitive information and that they really need that in order to be able to just go about their business and so to dump huge volumes of highly sensitive information like that into the public arena makes makes it almost impossible if that were to be accepted as a as you call it a journalistic act and that was then the precedent do you see that it would make it almost impossible for governments to function in that kind of environment?
2: Well, I think you need to take a step back. Uh, governments have a legitimate interest in protecting their information. They can legislate to protect it, um, to protect uh, their workers from um, disseminating information, although there should be whistleblower protections, obviously. Uh, that is. The government's um, purview. The journalist's role is to publish information of significance to the public. Julian is not accused of the volume of publication. Could have been one document, it would be the same. Uh, The accusation is not about uh, 90,000 Afghan uh, war diary entries.
1: Do you you not think the journalist's role, though, is also to have a sense of responsibility about what they put out? Absolutely. To work on it, to uh, triple check it, to give context, and to try and tell the story in a way that brings truth to light, rather than just mass dumping vast volumes of documents that you're not even certain what the repercussions of that might be. I mean, is that journalism?
2: But that's a common misconception that WikiLeaks just dumps information. The publications that Julian is indicted over, uh, the Afghan war logs, WikiLeaks published that in... Look, this is. This was the beginning of data journalism. And so WikiLeaks had this data and then entered into partnerships with The Guardian and others in order precisely to contextualize, to, um, you know... Uh, release it in a way that was understandable to the public and also to redact information that was, uh, could be um, considered to be uh, a risk. And WikiLeaks did do that. With the Afghan war logs, it withheld 15,000 out of the 90,000 documents. With the Iraq war logs, in fact, WikiLeaks was accused of over-redacting. There was an article in Wired, I think, that compared the same document that had been released by the Uh, Pentagon under FOIA, under Freedom of Information uh, Act, and the same document published by WikiLeaks, and it was more redacted in the WikiLeaks publication. It's been a Pentagon talking point that WikiLeaks didn't redact, uh, but during the extradition hearing, there has been a lot of um, testimony and documentary evidence that WikiLeaks did in fact Um, redact this information.
1: Are there any documents or pieces of information that Julian regrets having put out there and wishes had been kept back? Or, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of documents there were in total, but is he entirely happy with every single one of them?
2: Well, unfortunately, (laughs) uh, Julian can't speak for himself, so I can't put words in his mouth. But um, Julian always took uh, steps Um, to assess uh, the material, if there was any material that uh, could be considered to be put a person at risk of arbitrary detention or physical harm. Uh, Those were withheld, and that was in fact in the agreement that WikiLeaks had, a written agreement with the media organizations, uh, with the cables, that that had to be redacted. In fact, the media organizations, part of their role, apart from researching and using the files and telling WikiLeaks uh, when the stories would be published so that they could be published together, also had to notify Wikileaks um, and themselves redact the names of people that could be potentially uh, harmed. So this was part of the process. Um, the U.S. government, in spite of you know the typical top talking points of harm, when they've been under oath in the Manning trial and again in the extradition hearing, have had to admit that they have no evidence of a single person having come to harm as a result of these publications. It's a talking point. Contrast that with what has been revealed with these publications: tens of thousands of deaths, um, you know, evidence of complicity in torture. Not just the U.S. You know, the, the cables revealed, or maybe it was the Iraq files, that the U.S. knew that the Iraqi government was torturing detainees and was still handing them over to be tortured. It implicated, um, you know, the commission of crimes committed by by um, yes, the U.S. but others as well and the US politically interfering in the legal processes in Spain and in Italy and in Germany, many concrete cases of wrongdoing, of unethical behavior and of crimes.
1: So you think of this as a pretty straightforward power battle then, do you? I mean, is this a case of, as you would have it, a government being caught doing things wrong, exposed and trying to punish the person who, Revealed it or make an example of them. Is that is, is that as simple as that then? Do you think is that? Is that your version of what's happening here?
2: Julian is a Yes, an example. They're setting an example of um, What can happen If you Embarrass the government and um the U.S. government, but not just the U.S. government, because Julian is such a high-profile case that it is basically, it sets the global standard. You have um, you have governments all over the world using this case, not just as a case to argue, um, look what hypocrites these Western countries are when it comes to press freedom. It's also a license for those countries to do the same and what you have is a global race to the bottom if julian who is accused of activities that you know the press freedom look you don't you don't need to read the long indictment you need to look at what the subject experts are saying about this case and the press freedom, freedom organizations have analyzed the indictment. That's what they're there for. And they see that this case is a danger because of the precedent it sets, because of the way the activity is described, um, and because of the political effect it has. It has an incredible, incredibly chilling effect. No journalist, no person who gets a leak like the Chelsea Manning leak today is going to risk it. You'd have to be mad. This is the first time they've done it. And you know what? It's not just, I see Julian's case, this is why I, I have a lot of frustration about how it's talked about. Julian's case is a, it is an insight into where things are going. For example, in 2010, WikiLeaks was cut off from its donations stream. PayPal, Bank of America, uh, and Visa, MasterCard, stopped processing Donations to WikiLeaks Right
1: under order from the authorities
2: extrajudicially But there had been calls from a couple of Lieberman a couple of uh, US politicians, so it was uh, unofficial This had never been done before but look what's happening now. This is um, being done against, you know um, It's being done to lots of um, small organizations that say you know it's kind of in tandem with censorship because it's a way of of economically strangling um, an organization or a news outlet especially if it's small and it doesn't have any other way of of um, you know sustaining itself uh
1: so when you think about what julian's campaign is for now i mean in a way we've focused on what it's against and as you perceive it the injustices of, of what's happened to him. If we zoom out, what is, a lot of people still admire Julian Assange. What What is he for, would you say? What, 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 what kind of world does he want there to be?
2: Julian is orig- originally a cypherpunk. Um, he's a free speech activist. So he understood, because he was an early adopter of the Internet, um, he understood the architecture of the Internet um, early on, and he's also a, a cryptographer so he was working on cryptography and encryption basically Uh, now most people are familiar with encryption back in 2010 when wikileaks was publishing this stuff um none of the big organizations used encrypted communications um so obviously in uh journalism 21st century journalism needs to have uh a secure way of communicating in order to ensure uh, that surveillance cannot um, interfere with the journalistic process.
1: So he's we, he's pro he's a free speech activist, you would still say, who is also a crypto...
2: Well, I see cryptography as, cryptography. as like the ability to communicate privately is essential for free speech. Um, and everyone knows that, like everyone's um, now sensitive to the fact that we're using platforms. Um, that use our data that have complete insight into our you know moods, uh, our search history, and so on. If you don't use uh, these these um...
1: I mean, I've just got to push back on one point, which is that you say the ability to communicate privately is essential for free speech. That's a quote of what you said a moment ago. If I am an ambassador from a government or a junior member of staff of a, d- covering a sensitive, dangerous part of government policy, I need to be able to communicate privately in order for free speech to flourish. So, how does that square with making public loads of private communications? Isn't there a contradiction there?
2: Well, it depends what the um, the government's role is to to ensure that it can protect the communications of those um, of its uh, workers. But if a journalist re- receives Um, communications that are of significance to the public then it is the journalists role to make that public. WikiLeaks came out of, it's interesting because nowadays no one talks about transparency but WikiLeaks was formed in 2006 and at the time you'll remember there was this whole uh, movement for transparent government, open government, Freedom of Information Act requests and so on. No one talks about that anymore because the surveillance industry and the integration of social media platforms with the Um, This um, government surveillance and private industry and so on is so integrated but there was this moment of um, idealism and potential of openness and transparency and WikiLeaks grew out of that uh, moment and WikiLeaks was one of many actually except Julian's added value was he's an He's a security expert, he's an encryption expert, and he was able to protect sources. And that meant that WikiLeaks would get very high value sources from all over the world, by the way. Kenya, Peru, China, WikiLeaks is still banned in China, Um, and was able to make such headway in, and and transform journalism. Now the the tools that WikiLeaks developed, um, the encrypted Dropbox, um, and partnering with other organizations in order to get the most out of big data, like the um, ICIJ now does with Panama Papers and that kind of thing. That was started with WikiLeaks, with these publications.
1: Do you think that moment that you talked about in 2005-06, where the internet was going to be this open place, um, where sunshine would be let in and there would be transparency everywhere, um, do you think it's over? Do you think the internet just took a different course? And... What future does that
2: lead us towards, do you think? Um, The definitely the commercial Internet is a lost cause. It is um, all the large social media platforms are basically uh, tools for surveillance. Um, But at the same time, especially with the Snowden revelations, there was a uh, wake up call that we have to adopt encrypted encryption in order to, if there's any hope, um, to try to uh, fight back. And there is, you know, there, there are tools, uh, but they are not used by the majority of people. And most people don't have an expectation of privacy anymore. And that limits their um, behavior terribly. And I think that's part of the the uh, phenomenon of these like social media pylons and and uh, this culture of censorship and of self-censorship. It comes from the uh, communications environment that we're that we use as our public space, which is not at all a public space. And it is uh, conditioning people's, not only their free speech, but their freedom to think, freedom to think freely.
1: Don't you think, I'm kind of coming back to this idea, but it keeps occurring to me, don't you think, in a way, that is a result of the naivety of those earlier moments where we thought the best thing is to be open about everything, to dump the documents out, to to let the, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant was the phrase. And it was this idea that if we just conduct our whole lives in the open, we'd be more free. But actually what's turned out is that by conducting things in the open, you end up opening yourself up to a new kind of scrutiny and a new kind of fear. And you talk about social media pylons and the control of government and commercial interests on the internet. All of that has come out of this earlier moment where everyone decided to do everything in public, including WikiLeaks. So in a way, shouldn't there be a a little bit of sobriety around that, that, that maybe WikiLeaks was part of a moment of over enthusiasm that now has come back to bite us.
2: I don't, I don't believe that people knew what they were doing when they were got on Facebook and signed off their data to Facebook, and when they were searching in Google and were actually signing off all the information that Google was connect- collecting from them um, and selling that on to to others, to third parties, or with sharing those with governments. No one knew, no one understood that was happening. It took a long time for people to understand that's what was happening. And um, (laughs) I don't think what is happening now is a corrective course. What is happening now is a a frightening step, a frightening shift towards censorship, towards uh, the relationship between the citizen and the state is hugely transformed over the past 10 years. Basically the public space has become an informational battleground and you have and it's invisible as well. The algorithms you know that are conditioning our behavior and we don't even know how they're being how our behavior is being conditioned. Um, They know more about us than we know ourselves you know like take a maybe silly and and very female example. If I have my cycle on my phone, then, you know, and my health tracker and so on, that's a lot of information that I'm not even conscious of, or what I thought about on this day three years ago. I have no idea. Um, So this is is extremely frightening. And as someone who, you know, experienced life without the internet. I was young, but I remember it. And, uh, and this kind of moment of, of WikiLeaks, um, of internet idealism. I remember it. And where we are now, how do you fix it? Because it's like, there is no corrective course. Uh, there's not enough pushback because I think there's not enough awareness of how things are changing.
1: Do you think you're gonna win this argument?
2: I think Julian will be free and I think the more people understand what's at stake how all our rights are uh, are affected severely affected by the case against him it's not some sweet generous thing it has implications for everyone and for the scope of the ability of journalists to be able to report on government wrongdoing. This is what it is in its essence. Um, if there is awareness about that, we will win this.
1: Stella Morris, wife of Julian Assange, thank you. Thank you. That was Stella Morris, wife of and campaigner for Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. Whatever your view on that kind of mass security breach, and the arguments are quite finely balanced when it reaches that kind of scale, we clearly weren't coming to Stella for an impartial assessment of his case. She is, after all, his wife and the mother of his two children, and she just wants to get her husband out of prison. But I thought it was fascinating to hear how they frame it and how they see the passage of time and how the internet has changed since those heady days of the 2000s hope you found it as interesting as we did. This was Unheard Ideas.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,